When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ken Epstein, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at season one of HBO's A Game of Thrones. Overview of the entire season. This is still probably the best season of Game of Thrones. Bigger and perhaps better set pieces and plot lines and big battles and events have certainly happened. But it's very, very hard to say that any of them have surpassed the overall success and impact of season one. And that's sometimes easy for season ones, right? I always go to Rescue Me, Dennis Leary's wonderful firefighter show, one of my favorite shows, but that season one was perfect. It was always tough for the rest of the seasons to really, really surpass the perfect package that was the first season. And season one of Game of Thrones was, in fact, to me and many, many others, the perfect package. That pilot, Winter is Coming, is still one of the best pilots out there, one of the best first episodes in any show, and it had to do the impossible. Sell a high-concept fantasy world that was so rich and so thick that the owner of that world and creator of it, George R. R. Martin, had swore it would never be adapted into screen in any shape or form. That first episode brought people in. If you go back, it's easy to kind of laugh and make fun of... Tyrion Lannister's hair and uh, uh, sets don't look as big and bold as they do now. They clearly were working on a budget. And, of course, the first pilot, as often happens in television, had to be almost completely reshot. There's very little for the first pilot. In the second version of the pilot, there's a lot of things working against him. But it was about the characters, and you have great source material. But Dan and Dave, Benny Hoff and Weiss, they rolled up their sleeves with the help of their writing team, their help of the production team, and they got in there and really brought us into the world. But that could have faded away. In The King's Road, episode two, I always think it's one of my least favorite episodes, but it's still great. I mean, that's the case with a lot of episodes. I don't know. There's something about The King's Road that seems so quiet, so almost simple compared to the things that would come, but it does really uh, have a lot of important things in it, and I think uh, Arya Stark, uh, the early the early version of her that we get there, of what's to come, Joffrey, of what's to come, there's a lot of important things. But the show moves along so nicely, and by cripples, bastards, and broken themes, theme, things, excuse me, in episode four, the story is really uh, picking up, and that is when Catelyn Stark arrests Tyrion Lannister and takes the show into an even bigger, bolder direction. The world was small up to that point. This was about the Lannisters. This was about the Starks. But the cripples, bastards, and broken things episode really started to step the story forward. Then, of course, I think by episode six, a golden crown when Cal Drogo kills Viserys. You're now you're in uncharted territory. Now you're wondering, wait, this villain Viserys was going to be this villain, right? We didn't like him. Now he's dead. It sets us up for what's to come, of course, with Ned Stark and in seasons that follow. 
the best episode, I believe, is absolutely you win or you die. Now, I I say absolutely, but I think every season's best episode is probably debatable, which is, again, why this show is so great. You win or you die, to me, is the template episode for a lot of big things that are to come. Uh, It ends with the big betrayal of Baelish and Eddard Stark, Baelish telling him, I warned you not to trust me. That is one of those big gasp moments, but there's a lot going on in that episode. Uh, and uh, with Cersei and, and, and uh, Ned, them facing off, There's uh, this is where uh, Cersei actually says, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. I think that's that episode, which is episode 7, is the template for what makes great Game of Thrones episodes. But this, the beauty against the horror of the uh, murder, uh, of uh, the execution of Ned Stark in the episode Baylor, uh, episode 9, directed by Alan Taylor. I think that also sets the tone for some of the big moments that are to come. The Red Wedding, the Purple Wedding, all those moments of, of horror and death played against uh, some sort of beauty. When the birds fly off and Arya Stark is in uh, Yorin's arms uh, as he shields her from her father's death, it is... It is, it is beautiful, and it is tragic, and that's played out time and time again. That's a quick look at Season 1. What do you guys think about Season 1? This is an overview. Let's have some overview discussion about Season 1 that we can get back in as we also look towards Season 2 of Game of Thrones. Season 7 is just around the corner. I'm Ken Apsuck, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. It's time to start recapping each season, taking a closer look as we build up towards Season 7. And I wanted to start with the MVP of Season 1. Why not start at the top? We'll break down individual episodes, big moments, our favorite moments, least favorite moments, and maybe the worst character of each season and the character that made the worst move. But I want to start at the top. I'm going to put a great call station here in a second from our listener, Ventures87. A great call that aligns with my choice for the MVP of Season 1 of Game of Thrones, and it is Daenerys Targaryen. Daenerys Stormborn, uh, Mother of Dragons, the Khaleesi. The protector of the realm, question mark, one day. But it all began with a quiet, shy little girl in episode one, uh, abused by her brother, used as a pawn in a bigger scheme for the return to Westeros and the retaking of the Iron Throne for her brother Viserys. Uh, we have talked before on Daily Thrones whether or not Ilio Mopatis and... And Varys had, had maybe the plan included Viserys dying and that they knew Danny was the actual answer? We don't know. But the point is, season one, which had great performances all around and uh, contained solid performances up the contenders for this MVP, I guess I should say, to me are Jon Snow and Ned Stark. Ned Stark, of course, was the star for all intents and purposes. Sean Bean was at the front of this show during season one, which is why his death was so shocking. The shadow of Ned Stark still looms very much over this series. You see it in the face, the haunted eyes of Arya Stark. You see it when Sansa and Jon Snow are having a conversation at Winterfell when they're reunited, talking about winter has finally come. All those times that Father warned us and told us it's finally here, and they share a a sweet, sweet but bittersweet for sure moment. Ned Stark's shadow is far and wide over the series, but... I think I, I think there were a lot of other um, bigger players on that level in season one. Now, Jon Snow was one of them. This definitely became Jon Sto- Snow's story for a lot of reasons 
when Ned Stark died. I remember my friend Christian Harloff called me that night, shocked that Ned Stark had been beheaded, and said, well, this is Jon Snow's story now. It has to be. And I think it might be. I think in the end it is his story. But his growth has been played out over a longer period of time. I think Jon Snow definitely ends up in a different spot at the end of season one than he began. Most of the characters do. But I think Daenerys's was a bigger growth. We see her go from that shy little girl. We see her become the Khaleesi. We see her eat that horse heart. We see her uh, uh, stand tall. We see her staring as her brother is killed viciously by her husband. Uh, She definitely grows, but also the legacy goes beyond just the character. And I think some of the lasting images of season one, the, the ones that you could see cosplayed and the one you could see uh, on on t-shirts and and catchphrases and all those things it really was Daenerys who was the breakout star of that series I think season one was really her story it ends with that moment with the dragons being hatched her standing stark naked amongst uh, ash and ruin and holding the dragons that was the moment that brought people back later seasons for sure other things Uh, Jon Snow's death at the end of season five is is perhaps one of the biggest cliffhangers, even though most of us assumed he'd be back. It was it was about how. But at the end of season one, when Danny stood tall with those dragons, it was an oh wow moment. That is the lasting memory and perhaps the biggest legacy of season one. So Daenerys Targaryen is our season one MVP. If you agree, call in and let me know. If you disagree and have another choice, call in and let me know. And favorite the station right here on Anchor so you won't miss any of the recaps as we lead up to season seven on July 16th, 2017. We're about ready to go. That's it for now on Daily Thrones. Hey Ken, my award for MVP of season one goes to Danny. Um, this question was actually a lot harder than I thought it would be, but when you break it down and look at how far Danny came from where she started the season in Pentos to where she ended up walking into the funeral pyre, expecting to die, and coming out with her three dragons, there's no question in my mind anymore. Um, you know, she went from this meek and mild little girl that seemed like she was scared of her own shadow to eating hearts and gaining the trust of the Dothraki, and there's no question left for me. I think another argument could be made for Rob, but just watching Danny's character growth over one season, it's got to be Danny. Thanks, Ken. Hey, Ken. I absolutely agree with you, inventors, that Daenerys Targaryen was the season one MVP. I can, I mean, yes, you can make a case for John. He ends up kind of where he wanted to be, outside the wall, almost like a ranger. Um, and it's interesting with Ned Stark because the main promotion image that we saw in season before the season started was Ned Stark, Sean Bean on the Iron Throne. So I can't even imagine the shock people had when he died. And those that I mean have not read the books, but the character progression of Daenerys Targaryen from the pilot, some that's being basically sold by her brother into a marriage, to season 10, where she ends up with those dragons, and those dragons are the biggest and most important weapon that anybody on the show has or probably will ever have going forward. So definitely for me, Danny was my season one MVP. Thanks for listening. 
I'm Ken Epsock, back here on Daily Thrones. I put a call on the station from Mike. New caller, I do believe I love hearing new voices just as much as I love hearing uh, the old familiar voices here. This is a community on Daily Thrones. So if you're out there listening and you're feeling a little shine, you don't want to uh, don't want to call in, please, please do. This is a, a nice, friendly place to talk about Game of Thrones. But Mike had a great observation from Season 1 about Tyrion and Jon's relationship. Uh, they seem to have some sort of mutual respect at the end. And that's actually one of my favorite parts of Season 1, is when Jon Snow, upon kind of realizing what the Night's Watch has become and what he's surrounded by, uh, rapists and murderers and thieves and all these horrible criminals that are now taking the black and suddenly it's all erased, Jon Snow said quite plain, plainly to Tyrion Lannister that you're the only one that told me. You're the only one that told me the truth. Not even my father, not my uncle. They all let me figure it out for myself, but you are the only one. And I think around that time, Jon really started to have a respect for Tyrion Lannister and vice versa. I think Tyrion, uh, there's so many great moments that uh, those, those save the cat moments, which are the old uh, the screenwriting tool of, of giving a character something to do, like, say, saving a cat that makes them sympathetic. And Tyrion has a lot of those in season one. It just starts almost right from the beginning, whether it's slapping Joffrey and treating this little punk Joffrey bad um, as he deserves, or uh, saying poignant things hard truths to Jon Snow about him being a bastard and wearing that like a like a shield because never forget who you are because the world won't. Um, I, those moments are so plentiful uh, from Tyrion in season one. But uh, the moments with him and Jon are great and could lead to, of course, some sort of team-up or reunion later on. What will happen if and maybe when Tyrion Lannister stands in front of Jon Snow again. Now Jon Snow is the king of the north, the watch, the, the, the commander of the Night's Watch. He's got all these titles, he's got all these experiences. What will Tyrion say to Jon and what will Jon say to Tyrion? And will that help form some sort of partnership between Daenerys and Jon Snow and lead to the realm being saved? The seeds to this union are found if it does happen, all the way back in Season 1. Another reason Season 1 still remains probably, arguably, the best season. Keep the calls coming in, guys, here on Daily Thrones, or find me on Twitter at Ken Napsuck. Use the hashtag Daily Thrones. We are getting ready for Season 7. I'm Ken Apsuck, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. We're still taking a closer look at Season 1 of Game of Thrones, perhaps the best seasons we talked about in our overall review. We've also talked about the MVP of the season, which, with a close vote for me, is Daenerys Targaryen. Jon Snow, Ned Stark in there as well. Who, though, is the biggest power player of Season 1? The one man that made the most moves, I think, and he's a contender for almost every season. But for me, that award, I think, goes to Peter Baelish, Littlefinger. But don't you call him that. If you know where the story goes and you're not being spoiled beyond season one, you know that a lot of what we get in season one can be traced back to one thing, the death of John Aaron. And that has everything to do with Peter Baelish. So before we even meet Littlefinger, 
his plan is already in action. He's already pulling strings. He's already moving around in the shadows. He's already telling people, whispering in their ears, telling them this, making them believe that. He's in Arya's ear about the Hound. He's in Sansa's ear. He's in Ned Stark's ear. He has uh, Catelyn Stark believing that it was his dagger that he gave to Tyrion, the Valyrian steel dagger that was in the hands of her assailant, the one who tried to kill her because she was where she wasn't supposed to be back in Winterfell as they once again uh, tried to take out Bran. Peter Baelish was all over the power plane in season one. The biggest one of all had to be getting Ned Stark to trust him despite warning Ned Stark, specifically warning Ned Stark, do not trust me. Ned does, simply because his wife told him to. Peter Baelish had already worked the magic on Catelyn Stark, whether she wants to believe it or not. Season one saw a lot of people establishing their power. Varys from the shadows has a lot of power. Cersei, it could say, you could say, had a lot of power in season one. The essentially removing Robert Baratheon, part of that plan, getting him drunk, the boar, the wine, all of it there. There's a lot of power there. But Cersei seemed to be playing from uh, a more of a defensive position throughout this season. Season 6, I think Cersei finally takes control. She was always out to prove herself, not so much in control. Peter Baelish was very much in control. Now, I think Rob Stark definitely earned some power points. He, he, he rose, became the young wolf, captures Jaime Lannister, but it's not enough. It's too late in the season. So for that, Peter Baelish wins the Power Player of Season 1 award. He goes on to a lot of other things. There's a lot. Again, he's a contender for almost every season, but it is here. This little man hiding in the shadows who would do almost anything to get what he wants. And what does he want? Well, sometimes we're not entirely clear. Chaos is a ladder, and Peter Baelish was climbing that ladder before the show even started. Guys, let me know who your power player of season one is, and maybe it's the same answer. Call in, let me know, find me on Twitter at KenNapsuck, hashtag Daily Thrones. We talk Game of Thrones daily. Daily here. A lot of you are just hopping on board, trying to find me from other places where I was over at Screen Junkies or the Night of Stark podcast. I'm here now. You may hear me other places, but this is me to you daily on Anchor. Favorite the station so you don't miss a broadcast. And then let me know who is your power player of season one. I'm Ken Napsack here on Daily Thrones, and I've got one of the uh, one of my favorite Game of Thrones fans. He's got a lot of passion for it. Andres Ace Cabrera from Schmoes No and other wonderful things. Uh, Ace, yes, season sir? one. We're looking back in season one. Yes, sir. Your MVP this season yes, and your sir. power player this season. Got you. Uh... This is going to be a weird one, but I'm going to say MVP is Mr. Ned Stark. He's in the... Yes, this is good. Ned Stark. See, Ned Stark, you can see his pretty much his entire arc in season one, right? From yeah. beginning to end. But you see his clinging to honor and his fight against the political right. ways of King's Landing. Right. From my power player, I'm taking one of my top three all-time favorite Game of Thrones characters. And he continues to be one of my favorite Game of Thrones characters. And I know everyone hates him, but... 
Littlefinger, to me, just pulled the biggest moves yeah. in season one and is still pulling the best moves now. Uh, he's my answer, too. I think he is the answer. He's the one who's got it all started. You know, part of I love Jon Snow, and part of me does want to see him on the throne or Danny on the throne. But at the end of the day, some twisted part of me kind of wants to see Baelish on the Iron Throne with Sansa by his side. <laughs> in a weird way, he would have earned it. Uh, see, I still think it can happen. I, yeah. just, it's George R.R. Martin, so you never know. It just might happen. Ace, those are some great answers. You can find Ace on... you got a YouTube channel, right now? Yeah, it? um, it's Squad Leader Ace, which is the same as my Twitter yeah. handle. So you can uh, check that out where I talk about anime and Attack on Titan. That's great. We're in a hot closet here at the Clutter Studios. Let's get out of here. That's, That's the answers from Ace here on Daily Thrones. I'm Ken Absock, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at Season 2 of HBO's Game of Thrones. That's right, we're getting ready for Season 7, going season by season. We've been looking at season one, so naturally, two comes after one. I am pretty vocal about the fact that season two is, to me, an underrated season. When you look back on the history of the show, season one stands to mind as being great. A lot of people love season three. Season four, you have Oberyn. Three, of course, you have The Red Wedding. Five, though controversial, has some big, giant episodes like Hard Home. And season six, you can't deny, I think, really recaptured a lot of fans who were uh, wary coming out of season five. Season two can kind of get lost in the shuffle. I think part of the reason for that is you're following the first big album. If Game of Thrones was a rock band, that season one was a smash hit that for a lot of people came out of nowhere. It had some big hit singles. It took years to make. And in fact, it had been in just dating periods, uh, just dating periods since 1996 is what I'm trying to say. That's that first album. That's what happened. But then the rock band that hits it big with the big album has to come out with a second album right away. And you have to do it in a lot less time, even though the show was certainly in development beyond one season at a time. You know what I mean? Season two didn't have the big singles. The Battle of Blackwater Bay was perhaps the biggest song to come off that album. And that one is often overlooked. Instead, it's a bunch of little pieces adding up to a great, great season. And a great record, if we want to continue with the band analogy. Season one saw us by the end with some of our favorite characters already dead. Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark. Season 2, shortly after it begins, Renly's gone. Now, was Renly one of the big popular characters? No, but he was a very likable character. And a lot of people, if you weren't familiar with the books, thought Renly would factor in a little more. But he's gone. Instead, Stannis arrives. Stephen Delane does such a good job with Stannis, I believe. you got Stannis and Melisandre, but Stannis is not charismatic as a character, of course. He's not designed to be. And now that's one of your main characters. Jamie Lannister. One of your main characters, the one everyone loved to hate, is now captured. And you're starting to see the tide turn for him. He is becoming a, uh, a little bit, that gray area is really emerging. And you, had, you find yourself having some sort of sympathies for Jamie Lannister that you might not have had before. We do get to meet a bunch of wonderful characters that factor in for seasons after seasons. And that is Brienne of Tarth. Marjorie Tyrell come to mind. Uh, you have them stepping forward. You have uh, Theon going bad. Though Theon kind of not always popular, but he goes bad. But Rob Stark emerges. And then Tyrion Lannister. I believe he is the star of the season. More on that later, of course. 
his turn as Hand of the King is very interesting and very crucial to the story and drives a lot of this season. There is some great episodes with great little parts. I'm rewatching it right now. And go back to Harrenhal. Tywin Lannister and Arya Stark, their conversations still stand out to me as some of the best in all of Game of Thrones, all six seasons so far. And it wasn't in the book. It was something added. It's great. Maisie Williams kills it in that role, no pun intended. And Tywin Lannister, Charles Dance is perfect. Their scenes are so fraught with tension, intrigue, and a mutual respect. I sometimes wonder if Tywin knew. I don't think he did. If he knew that was Arya Stark, he doesn't have that kind of empathy or sympathy to let his guard down. He would have done something with that. That's a prized possession. But there's something about Tywin in those scenes. He knows she's not what she claims to be. He just can't figure it all out. It all ends in perhaps my favorite battle still. Hard home, watchers on the wall, and of course the Battle of the Bastards. We got a lot of bigger battles later on in the show. But battle, the Battle of Blackwater Bay, episode 9, Blackwater, is still to me the one that was, it's just poetry. It's perfect. It is a great battle. And in it, you actually start to form some kind of sympathy for Cersei Lannister again. And the Hound, he turns here. And Joffrey, of course, builds to being the villain we all want to see die. Season 2 of Game of Thrones is underrated. But when you go back and watch, it really, really proves itself time and time again. What do you think of Season 2? Call in here to Daily Thrones. Find me on Twitter. Use the hashtag Daily Thrones. Talking Season 2. Hey, this is Daily Thrones. I'm Ken Napsuck, and I'm here with a special guest. JTE, are you there? What is going on, buddy? Let's talk some Thrones. Let's talk some Game of Thrones. Of course, JTE can be seen on Screen Junkie, Schmoes, No, Movie Trivia, Schmo down on Collider Video, but also right here on Anchor on JTE Movie Things. But JTE, you also think about Game of Thrones. I'm talking Season 2 right now. We're doing some reviews, some looking back on all the seasons as we build towards Season 7. Uh, what is your overall thoughts of Season 2 of Game of Thrones? You know, Season 2s are very important, especially when you're coming off such a great first season. Because uh, really, you're yeah. introducing to the characters. I remember the first season came out, I had to watch it twice. There's so much information coming at you, that, yeah. and you're learning so much about these characters. Season two, I felt like while we got introductions, we really got to know the characters much more, especially Peter Dinklage, Cersei. I felt like I got to know those characters so much more in season two, even though I think season two had a little bit maybe of a slower pace than the first one. It, it did. It, it absolutely did. And I call it an underrated season because it, it, it doesn't have that big, giant moment other than the Battle of Blackwater. But there isn't that yep. head being chopped off, that wedding where everyone dies. It does build, but when you go back and watch it, you're kind of rewarded, and it's definitely Tyrion season. Definitely. And, I mean, Blackwater is like – that is when the show reached another level, in my opinion. Because the first season, yeah. yeah, it was all that water cooler moments of like, oh, my God, I can't believe they killed Ned. Uh, some of the things that were going on, even from the first episode when – they throw the kid out of the window. Like, there's those <laughs> moments. But season two with Blackwater, I, it, that's when it really, like, reached another level of – it was more than just a TV show after that episode. It was, and, and the budget for Blackwater is now kind of famous or infamously low. They were still working with a smaller budget. We've seen bigger battles. I still think Blackwater, and I say it often here on Daily Zone, that Blackwater's 
my favorite battle because of the way they they pulled it off and the emotional undertones. Does Blackwater still rank high or has been surpassed in your mind? It does. You know, Neil Marshall, I believe, directed that episode, and he's gone on yeah. to direct many other episodes of Game of Thrones. And I will say, going back, watching season two now, you do see some of the budget restraints on the episode. A lot of those shots are kind of like very close to the wall. There's corridors. Yeah. You didn't get that like sweeping, epic battle scenes like you get now with Battle of the Bastards. But because of that, yeah. it does give it a little more of an intimate feel, especially with Stannis. Some of my favorite scenes on Blackwater is when Stannis literally has is told he has to retreat. And you're like, no, yeah. don't retreat, because you want Stannis to win that match. Absolutely, because as we know, Stannis is uh, the rightful king. That, <laughs> that is the Iron Throne by right. Uh, <laughs> yes, what, what are some of your other no, you standouts? That. What are you, some of your other, other your standouts in season two, characters or moments? Uh, it's tough. Like the, uh, where I'm with season six is about to begin right now. Season seven. I, I feel like seven. I'm sorry. I feel like I need to go back and watch the. F- I I I think right before the last season, I will do a full recap of the whole show. Yeah. Uh, because they kind of blend into each other a little bit. The big moments are the moments you remember, like Blackwater, the beheading, yeah. the Red Wedding. Again, yeah. I think also season two is we were introduced to um, Renly. I, oh well, well, well. No, Renly. Well, no, he was introduced in season one, but he dies in season two, and that's one of the big moments. Yes, but I feel like we barely got to see him in season one. Season yes. two is where I feel like he actually became a character and became a chess piece. What is the Game of Thrones? Ah, that's a very good point. You're right. We do get to spend more time with him finally, and just when you think, hey, this guy might be a good, oh, the Shadow Baby kills him. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the Shadow Baby. That's another big step for this series, because while we yeah. heard a lot of magic in the first season, this was the yeah. first time for me in season two where magic was like an element that could kill people, major yeah. players. Absolutely, absolutely. Who would you say is the biggest power player of season two? Who 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 moved forward the most? Who made the biggest move? Oh, man, that's tough. I, I You have to go with the... Uh, the father of the lions <laughs> there. Tywin, for him to come back and save Blackwater at the very end there, the scene yeah. where like Cersei is literally about to kill her son and herself, and he comes Great in, scene. he kind of he puts it down that, you know, hey, Lannisters are king of the jungle right now. <laughs> <laughs> and as you know, the, 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 uh, the jungle rules the kingdom, JT. <laughs> of course. I also love the, the introduction scene with um, uh, with the father of the Lannisters. I can't keep remembering his name. Uh, uh, Tywin Lannister, yes, yes. Tywin Lannister, when he's skinning the wolf. Ah, uh, that okay. is, yeah, episode seven uh, uh, of season one. Uh, that is a mm-hmm. great moment. He's, he's, he's skinning uh, uh, the big uh, the big uh, carcass there. Yeah, it's great, which was done yep. uh, done for real. Well, JT, you definitely wow. have some hit some great points on season two, and you better get ready and get all these names right for season seven because it's just around the corner. <laughs> it is to this day. I don't think I'll. I don't think I'll ever get all the names right. <laughs> it, it's hard, man. I I am impressed by you and some of the other people that you hang around with that are able to just rip these things off the top of their head. And I'm like, I need a Game of Thrones dictionary with pictures. Well. But to be fair, if I was to ask you some questions about Sylvester Stallone, I think you'd get that. (laughs) Definitely.
All right, guys, that's JT's thoughts on Game of Thrones, but he has a lot more thoughts on movies. You can check out JT Movie Thinks right here on Anchor and on YouTube. Follow him on Twitter. JT, thanks. Have a good night. Go play some video games. Will do. I'm Ken Napsuck, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. As we look back at Season 2, getting ready for Season 7, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't pause for a moment and reflect on the legacy of Egret. She was kissed by fire, and the quick-witted, courageous spear wife was from the North, the real North. And she became a very popular character on the show, and her death at the end of Season 5, The Watchers of the Wall, definitely had a big effect. Rose Leslie played her wonderfully, and that had a lot to do with this character crawling into our hearts, just like she crawled into that cave with Jon Snow. But I think it would be easy to overlook her legacy and influence. Jon Snow, of course, goes on to be, if not from the beginning, one of the biggest, most important characters in the story. And his journey from headstrong wannabe ranger to a very common sense based thoughtful leader of first the wall and now possibly all of the north i think a lot of that growth in john snow can be traced to season two when he meets egret we can get caught up in their fun love affair their talk of tra la 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 fancy dresses and castles and the scene in the cave which i still think is the best uh, love scene in Game of Thrones because it was so pure and so real and Jon Snow, maybe you just should have stayed in that cave but the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch who lets the wildings through the wall began in season 2 when Egret planted that seed as Jon Snow fails to kill her and walks around the north aimlessly with his new prisoner there's a great moment where Jon Snow is angry as she teases him and prods him and pokes him teases him about trying to prod and poke her there is a moment where Jon Snow gets mad and says I am the son of Ned Stark the blood of the first men is in my veins just as much as yours and Egret looks back right in his eyes and says then why are you fighting us the look on Jon Snow's face is one that shows those thoughts in that moment will resonate and influence him for the rest of the show Egret wasn't just some love affair it wasn't just a romantic lead she was a very important character with a very important influence on Jon Snow so as we move towards season seven and the memory fades of the one who was kissed by fire and Jon Snow becomes perhaps the leader of it all and the leader he was born to be don't forget the fiery redhead that looked Jon Snow straight in the eyes and told him you know nothing Jon Snow it changed the entire story I'm Ken Napsack, and this is Daily Thrones. We're taking a quick look back at Season 2 as we prep for Season 7. Who is the Season 2 MVP? I don't even think it's close. The answer to me, and hopefully you, is Tyrion Lannister. Built up in Season 1 as a sympathetic character on the wrong team, Tyrion Lannister ends Season 1 being sent back to King's Landing to be the hand of the king, while the real hand, the official hand, his father Tywin, is out fighting a war. We get to see Tyrion at his best. He is truly in his element. As Varys tells him towards the end, you are really good at this. You're good at the Game of Thrones. You're good at people. You're good at it all. Paraphrasing, of course, look it up. It is a great scene. Season 2 is full of a lot of great scenes. 
not the big moment. It is a slow burner of her season, and all through it, you can see Tyrion at his best, sending Janna Slint to the wall, playing a trick on uh, Baelish, Pycelle, and Varys. Which one of them would break? Which one of them would tell the queen the truth of Tyrion's plan to send Marcella off to Dorne? It would be Pycelle. Tyrion was always a step ahead of everyone here. Then, when it became apparent that the queen was up to something bad, he discovered, through a blackmailing of Lancel Lannister, that it was going to be wildfire, which he took for his own and made into his plan to defend the city from Stannis' armies. It was going to be sure defeat, but Tyrion's plan to launch wildfire at the ships. One of the most beautiful moments in the show for me when Bronn launches that arrow and it silently sails over Davos' ship. It saved the city. And what did Tyrion get for it? His face nearly cut off and his power removed. And all glory be to Tywin. But it was Tyrion's season. There's other close players in season two for sure. Rob has a great season. Tywin has a great season in his own realm. And Cersei definitely struggles to step forward, but in a lot of ways does. And Joffrey rises into the big villain we always knew he could be. But season two is all about Tyrion Lannister. And even now, we as fans want to see him back to where he belongs. In power as a hand to a ruler. Hey, Ken, what's going on? So talking about season two, my season two MVP is Tyrion Lannister. He was an absolute first off delight to watch the season. I think he was so good being Hand of the King. He, he made so many things happen. He's the one that brokered the deal to get Marcella off the door and to keep her safe, even though Cersei didn't see it that way. That was the truth. But he's the one that came up with the wildfire idea, which, came, which of course, destroyed Stannis' fleet and gave... Tywin and the Tyrells long enough to stop Stannis before he stacked the city. He's the one that led the charge when Joffrey was a coward and wouldn't fight. And he gave that amazing, like, Braveheart-type speech during Blackwater. Those are brave men at our door. Let's go kill them. Tyrion was a boss. He was a champ. True, and he doesn't end up in the best place in the finale. But throughout the season, in my mind, he was the MVP. Thanks for listening, Ken. I'm Ken Apsack, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the world of ice and fire. A lot of new people joining in as we build towards Season 7. We've been looking back. Season 1, the MVP, the power players, the episodes. And uh, let's do. we're doing the same for Season 2. We've looked back. We've named the MVP, which is Tyrion Lannister. But who is the power player this season? Who is the one that makes the most moves, the biggest strides? I think that has to be Tyrion as well. I think Tyrion Lannister is a double winner. It's like he won the Cy Young Award and the and the MVP. The Rookie of the Year. Well, he's not the Rookie of the Year. I can't use that analogy, right? You know what I mean. He's a two-time award winner. I think you cannot deny it. Now, Peter Baelish, who won Season 1's Power Player Award here on Daily Thrones, he's a contender, too. He goes around. He starts playing both sides. He's playing Catelyn Stark. He tries to play uh, Renly. And then he plays upon Marjorie Tyrell with that great moment, one of my favorite moments of the series. When post-Renly's death, she says, Marjorie, I wasn't really the queen. If Renly wasn't the king, I wasn't the, qu- the queen. Baelish asks, did you want to be a queen? Do you want to be a queen? And Marjorie says, I want to be the queen. Now, she might be playing Baelish a little bit, but Baelish is in charge there. And then Baelish goes off. He goes on a grand mission. 
any uh, connects the Tyrells with the Lannisters, which was, until that point, an alliance not a lot of people, including the Lannisters and Tyrells, saw coming. And season two ends with Baelish being rewarded Harrenhal. So I think Baelish is right there. But I also think Tywin deserves points for being a power player. He was on the run fighting a war and he was losing. But in the end, Tywin not only saves the day, he gets all the credit when Tyrion was really the one. But at the end of the day, much like the season belonging to Tyrion, the power plays all belong to Tyrion. He hit King's Landing running. Right from the beginning, episode one, he is already standing tall to Joffrey. He gets to surprise Cersei with the parchment saying, hey, I'm the hand of the king until dad gets back. Cersei can never quite catch up. Cersei in season two, there's some great scenes with Cersei in season two. But this isn't the Cersei later on who was either in control or thinking she was in control. In fact, she admits quite plainly in some of the... Some of the best scenes, uh, one-on-one scenes uh, in all of Game of Thrones, when she 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 uh, admits to Tyrion uh, that she can't control Joffrey, he he just can't, he won't listen. She can't do it. And there's another moment of Cersei sympathy, which pops up, and she admits to Tyrion quite plainly that she did have sex with Jaime. Those are his kids. It's a great moment. Check it out. It is uh, mid-season two, but seriously, never quite caught up. She never was quite in control, and that's because Tyrion was in control from the start. We mentioned it when we talked about Tyrion being the MVP of the season, but when he goes on and plays that trick on Pycelle, Varys, and Baelish to out one of them as the spy to Cersei, of course, ends up being Pycelle. Baelish and Varys are mad, but they can't be that mad. They know they've been played by someone who's on the level of them. Tyrion then, of course, saves Blackwater, the Battle of Blackwater. He saves King's Landing. He saves the people. Gets no credit. We know. We've talked about that. But he was there. And as Vera says, there will always be those that remember what Tyrion did. Later on, Tyrion loses a lot of his power. Later on, his power plays sometimes backfire. His biggest power play, to kill Tywin Lannister, came out of passion. Not out of strategy, not out of tactics, not out of planning. But season two, Tyrion had the power game in the palm of his hands. He was in control. This was definitely his season. Who do you think is the power player of the season? Who do you think is the MVP of this season? Favorite moments of season two? Least favorite moments of season two? Give me an overall view as well. You can call into the station. Find me on Twitter at CatNapsock. Hashtag Daily Thrones. As we get ready for season seven, make sure you favorite the station so you always get a broadcast. These are up for 24 hours, but the conversation goes on. It's Anchor, and this is Daily Thrones. Hey, Cat, now as far as favorite season two moments, oh my God, where to begin? Of course, Blackwater meeting Stannis, the Shadow Baby's birth, the Shadow Baby killing Renly. There's just so much stuff. Um, Jamie and Brienne's, the beginning of their adventure at the end of the season, I love. Just so many things in this season, which is why I think it may end up being my favorite season. And there's actually, I think, a foreshadow people kind of overlook when Daenerys is in the House of the Undying. Now, what she sees, she sees snow on the Iron Throne. And I kind of think that was a foreshadow of, of what the true war, as we know, really is against the White Walkers. It's not for the throne. It's against them. And I personally think that was actually a foreshadow. 
I'm Ken Absock, and we're here on Daily Throne, still looking in at Season 2. Season 2 is a very rich season when you really start to break it down. And earlier in the day, I put a call up from a good friend, Eric Monroe, talking about some of his favorite moments, and also touching upon the foreshadowing in Game of Thrones. I still think there is a lot. When you go back in it, you see a lot, whether it's uh, Arya Stark wishing and, and, and hoping that Rob Stark cannot be killed in her conversation with Tywin, whether it's Quaithe putting on the protective spell on a man, while uh, Jorah is talking to her, and she warns Dor- Jorah that you'll you'll need a man needs his protection if he's traveling through the Doom of Valyria, something that Jorah could have very well used himself a few seasons later. There's perhaps no bigger foreshadowing at the end of the season with Daenerys Targaryen when she finally goes into the House of the Undying, which I can't say it not like that, by the way. Um, in a weird way, I love Piet Bree. Um, I, you know, Danny goes in there, gets these visions of the future, and very, very clearly, way back in season two, we get the idea that winter will be coming and the Iron Throne will be covered in snow. Uh, it is uh, simple in that regard. We all knew that was coming. The show's been telling you winter is coming and that the White Walkers are part of that for literally the first 30 seconds of the show. But also, does that vision of Danny have... Uh, do you guys think it has anything to do with her possible death? We've talked about this earlier on Daily Thrones. Some of this has come up in conversation where... Perhaps the show ends, as George says, in a bittersweet way, because Danny dies, and maybe she is finally reunited with Cal Drogo on the other side of it all. And that might be something we saw in season two. Danny has the flashbacks or the flash forwards or the visions, whatever you want to call them. The winter has come to a very broken uh, 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 King's Landing with the uh, Iron Throne covered in snow. And then she walks out past the wall. And out past the wall is Cal Drogo waiting for her with her son, Rego. So, could that mean that Daenerys Targaryen's end will come and that she'll be reunited with Cal Drogo? What do you guys think? And talk about any other foreshadowings you see in Season 2 of Game of Thrones. It's great to think that this show, and of course the book, the source material, is so thought out, so thorough, that little tiny things, things that you miss upon fourth, fifth, and even sixth viewings, are there for you, just for the taking. Season 2, clearly, one of the underrated seasons that keeps on giving. What do you guys think? Call into the station. Find me on Twitter at CatNapsock. Use the hashtag Daily Thrones. And if you haven't already, favorite this station so you won't miss a broadcast. We're talking season two, season three. We'll get to that soon. I'm CatNapsock, and this is Daily Thrones. And what is Catelyn Stark's bigger mistake? Sometimes I can be a little harsh on Catelyn Stark. She makes some mistakes, some errors in judgments, and some rush to judgments that cause a lot of problems in the show. Though, uh, at the end of the day, you really can't blame a protective mother from doing everything she can to get her children back, protect her children, and keep her family safe. I think Catelyn Stark is a complicated character, and one of the more uh, interesting characters in just the short three seasons that we get her. Which, that's also weird to think that we only got Catelyn Stark for three seasons. But the show's already been on longer when season seven starts, uh, uh, and Catelyn Stark's been there for only half of it. That's what I'm trying to say. And that kind of blows my mind because she's such a key part of the show. But again, in season one, her 
Her taking Tyrion hostage, which essentially launched the War of Five Kings, essentially started to go. And it's maybe a big leap to say it's entirely her fault. It's, but you can't argue with the fact that she jumped to a big conclusion, made a rush decision, a, sp- a split-second decision out of passion that cost a lot of people and perhaps, in many ways, led to Ned Stark's death. But in Season 2, she makes another one. Potentially, but letting Jamie Lannister go. Was it a smart tactical decision? Was it something she felt she needed to do? Because when you watch season two, you start to see Rob Stark's already breaking down. You already see things going wrong. He's already starting to lose his men. He's already starting to uh, sow the seeds of the problems he'll eventually have, the ones that eventually spring up when they get to the Twin Towers. But uh, it... it uh, so that, from that point of view, I can't blame Catelyn Stark for maybe taking matters in her own hand, letting Jamie Lannister free in the hopes that he'll get her daughters because she didn't feel Rob Stark was going to do it. She didn't feel things were right. But you can't deny that that led directly to uh, a lot more death and a lot more uh, problems for Rob Stark's army. So which one was the bigger mistake? Or, and this could very well be the answer, Maybe they weren't mistakes. And maybe at the end of the day, me and other people should not be as harsh on, uh, of Catelyn Stark and the decisions she made to protect her family. You guys let me know as we break down Season 2. Season 3 will start breaking down tomorrow. Season 7 just around the corner. Call into the station or find me on Twitter at KenNapsuck. Use the hashtag DailyThrones. Favorite the station as well so you don't miss a broadcast as we look back to go forward. I'm Ken Absack, and this is Daily Thrones, a quick look at the Battle of Blackwater. That's right, Season 2's big number 9 episode, the one that we all look forward to now, that big number 9, which, you know, we don't get now in Season 7, but I'm sure Episode 6 will be our big one. But in Season 2, it was Blackwater, written by George R.R. Martin. We've talked about it here on Daily Thrones, and it's well known that the the budget in Season 2 certainly wasn't as big as it became in Seasons 3, 4, and beyond. So why in 5, you got big battles like Hard Home, and then in Season 6, the Battle of the Bastards, which are breathtaking pieces of cinema. A big screen come to the small screen. Battle of the Blackwater, clearly, if you watch the episode Blackwater, had budget limitations. It was a lot of tight shots against walls. It was a lot of uh, uh, special effects that were maybe not as good as they are now later on in the show. But what made that battle and that episode so great, and it's so perfect that it's written by George R. R. Martin, is that the episode focuses so much on the characters. Each character has their moments, and the battles aren't just fought on the battlefield. The battle is definitely fought in uh, the Red Keep when Cersei is battling with Shay and Sansa and some of the greatest moments as you watch Cersei, who's perhaps more jealous and slightly even protective of Sansa in a certain way as she throws wine down her throat. Uh, then you've got Tyrion and Varys. You've got Tyrion and the Hound. It's a great moment for the Hound who's battling his own demons and decides to make a big change and say, fuck the king and run away. There are great moments broken down into small, tiny, intimate moments with the scenes, and that makes the battle so much more. There's a lot riding on it. When Davos has his moment with his son and then loses his son in the wildfire, 
you feel it even more. You even have sympathy for Stannis, who has to be pulled off the battlements as his chances of being king are literally stampeded by Lannister and Tyrell horses. It is a great episode, written by the master himself, who had such control of the characters, and it's very, very clear. Though there's bigger moments to come later on in the show, The Battle of Blackwater, Episode 9 of Season 2, Blackwater, remains one of my favorites. What do you guys think of the battle? Let me know, and let's start looking towards Season 3, right here on Daily Thrones.